One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Runda Gerard, author of the novel A Map of Home and the short story collection Him, Me, Muhammad Ali. The collection is about a group of characters whose lives have been disrupted by their own foolish mistakes in life and love or by war and family traumas. While her characters exhibit a keen sense of humor, they still struggle with their identity and outcast status. While her stories take place in locations around the world, there is a strong sense of place in the Middle East as many of her characters live there or once did. We began the discussion talking about her childhood. I had grown up surrounded by other Arabs, and then I'd moved to the U.S. where I had absolutely no Arabs around me except for the ones in my house. So it was um, it was weird. It was weird also to deal with racism because I didn't really understand racism yet, you know, because I hadn't grown up around people of other cultures, really. I understood anti-Palestinian sentiment, but I didn't understand, like, how someone could be so ignorant. You know, when I knew so much about the U.S., I mean, I'd watched all these movies and (laughs) TV shows. Like, I felt like I was U.S. literate. Um, But no one I met really had, like, watched a bunch of, you know, Arabic movies or listened to a bunch of Arabic music. So they weren't they didn't seem literate in my background. And that was that was the shock part. Well, one of the things I noticed in in many of your stories, not all, but almost all of your char- your characters or even the voice of your narrators have this sassiness and kind of a subversive tendency. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. There's definitely something in me that, you know, always moves me towards sass. And I think it's a combination of things. I think that it's growing up with these 
you know, coming from these, from these two different countries, two different places, Egypt and Palestine. And if you know, like Egyptians, Egyptians are so hilarious and sassy. And like, my role model would be this, like, it's, it's actually an archetype. It's a character archetype of a woman. It's called a, she, she would be like a, she would be called a ma'allima, which means a teacher, but she, but it also means like the head of the street. So it's like this woman who basically runs the street and teaches everyone how to act and how to behave. <laughs> and she's super loud and super sassy. And so to me, this archetype is like something that I looked up to when I was a kid. I also like didn't know, I didn't really understand my own queerness, but basically now looking back, I was spending a lot of time in my room lip syncing. And it's not that I wanted to be a singer or a performer uh, in terms of like my own music because I didn't have any musical ability. But now what I realized is that I was being a drag queen. So I was basically <laughs> like wanting to wear all these different outfits and um, fashion myself into this hyper femininity um, and be a drag queen. And, and then like another, another, uh, part of me is the part that, you know, was taught to be really polite growing up. I was taught to be polite and, you know, I was, and I was told that, you know, not just by my parents, but by like larger cultural structures and in the Middle East and in the U S that, you know, a, a girl has a specific way of be, you know, that she's expected to behave. So I'm expected to be, you know, quiet-ish, to not take up a lot of space, um, to be respectful, um, to make my my point in a way that appeals to all people listening. So uh, in a harmonious way. And all of that is just to me, like, I completely reject that. Um, and I always have since I was little. So I think that a lot of what I'm doing is in reaction to those expectations. And so instead of being quiet and subservient and, you know, feminine in a way that's traditional, quote unquote, I prefer to be, you know, a, a femme and be fierce and loud and sassy. In in your stories, when your characters are like that and stories are about conflict, I noticed that in a lot of your stories, um, and that seems to be, I wouldn't know if, say if it's a theme or like a repeating trope, but I found that a lot of your characters were either rubbing against a parent or there was a missing parent. And I'm wondering if you can talk about this relationship between your narrators, first person or not, and the parental figures in their lives. I, I want to write about political and historical things, and but I don't want to write in a way that's didactic. And so for me, writing a character and having them have conflict with family and with parents is the perfect way to talk about authority and to talk about, you know, the hegemony of um, authority figures and how um, authority figures exercise their power and you know, ruin lives and pretend to, you know, to be good for you and all that stuff. And, you know, we're having this conversation like after this election, which everyone I know is freaking out about, it, you know, the, the results of because of the idea or the fear of authoritarian rule. And so I think, you know, most of the characters are in conflict 
in conflict with parental characters um, because the parental character has expectations or rules that essentially strip away the rights of the character, you know, whether the character is a child or an adult. And when, when the parents aren't doing that because they're dead, for example, the characters are in a state of mourning and confusion because, you know, once the, once, once, the people who are supposed to model your life are gone. Um, you know, where are you supposed to, how are you supposed to create new models and how are you supposed to move on and um, become rooted in yourself and in your own life? So there's a couple of stories. One is Accidental Transience. And Accidental Transience is about an Arab American woman who lives in uh, Jackson, Michigan, on a farm with her dad um, and her brothers in a very male household. And she's expected to do a lot of the work. And her mom fled that <laughs> the scene. You know, by the end of the story, I think you understand why. But I can read a little bit from when she leaves. My mama is no longer with us. I wish I could tell you she died romantically of a staph infection she contracted from a patient at the hospital, that we couldn't fly her to Palestine, couldn't watch her body rot as we waited to get through checkpoints, so we buried her in Hollow Cemetery, that her name is a bright and weightless leaf on the headstone, Salima Amir, that we visit her grave on Saturdays. But she is literally no longer with us. She left us for a Japanese entrepreneur who was in Detroit to check out Ford's output of hybrid SUVs. The suits took him for a drive in the country and hit a deer. He ended up at our local hospital where Mama was his nurse. She helped heal his broken ribs and nursed him back to health. He returned the favor by giving her a three-carat ring and asking her to run away with him. Her shift ended at 6 in the morning, and by the time we woke up at 7.30, she had already packed her things and left. She never said goodbye to me, just scrawled a note on the corner of my birding journal. You won't understand, end quotes, as if it were an order. And just like that, Mama had flown the coop. So now your main <laughs> character, who is Dina, is left, you know, with her family. Do you want to talk a little bit about that passage you read or, or more about the story? So this would be like a move in the story where it's not the character that's sassy, it's the story that's sassy. I think what I'm doing is writing against the idea that Arab women are obedient and martyrs. You know, this 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 character is an Arab woman who, you know, gets bored essentially from living on this farm with this man who doesn't really want to do much and leaves for like a more exciting life and doesn't care about having hurt her children's feelings, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I never had a model like that growing up and I wish I had. Um, so I think that that's in this particular story, Dima is left like to pick up the pieces, but she doesn't have to, you know, now that she's an adult, like she, she can also choose to leave. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. 
In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Renda Jarar, author of Him, Me, Muhammad Ali. So another thing that comes up a lot in your stories is sex. And I don't mean sex scenes, although there's some, and there are all kinds of sex scenes. There's lesbian sex scenes. There's a story that I really liked called Lost in Grink and Yonkers, where you have um, a pregnant Arab American girl living in New York who has a really bum of a boyfriend, and she gets pregnant at a very young age, and you have masturbation. So you include a lot of sex, and maybe people are surprised. Um, Again, when you go back to the stereotype of maybe the servile Arab woman, that's not what people expect. Can you talk about the role that sex plays and writing about it? One of my early interviews, like eight years ago, Someone's, someone asked me if I thought the Middle East needed a sexual revolution. And I just said, uh, no, I think, I mean, I think America needs a sexual revolution. I mean, I just feel like we live in such a prudish culture that pretends to be open. And um, I like to write against that. And I like, I like that. So, so that's like kind of like the, the larger frame. And then within that, or even maybe even outside of that, I want my characters to have bodily autonomy. It's important that that people, I think, have power over their lives and over their bodies. And that starts literally from, you know, whether or not their hand is allowed to, you know, touch the, their own genitals and those of others. And so, yeah, I have characters doing that. I have characters pleasuring themselves and uh, finding pleasure in other bodies. And to me, it's like a very beautiful and basic way to be creative and find joy in life is through sexuality. And so, and I, and I love that I don't really have a lot of sex scenes in the book, but everyone says there's a lot of sex in it. Like I, when you said that, it made me so happy because... <laughs> just like a it's just a vibe that I have or a a thread that I have running through the book and you know sex is sex is is life and I had a kid really young too and I think that like that's that always amazed me that sex maybe maybe hetero sex can lead to like just having more people in your house to pay rent for you know (laughs) like that's always amazed me so in your own life, how old were you when you had a child and how, how did that m- manifest in your own family? I was 18. My son's father was American and he was abusive and my family didn't really understand that or know what to do with that. My dad initially completely freaked out and didn't want to have anything to do with you know me or my decision. But at some point, 
I really, really could no longer live with my partner and my parents both had me move back in with them, which was the only way I could have probably left this person and finished going to college. So that's, that's how it worked out in my family. And then I just kept doing everything I wanted to do, you know, like, like all the plans I had initially for my life, which is to be a writer and go to grad school and all of that. In your story, Lost in Freaking Yonkers, you have this line, and I don't have it marked, but I remember it, where you were talking about how daughters have this secret relationship with their mothers once something like this happens, because if they've been disowned, their mother can't do it, and they're still in their lives, but in secret. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the line is, when you're disowned, your mother becomes your secret lover, calling from payphones, visiting at odd hours and for short bits of time. And your lover becomes your mother, has to take care of you now that she's gone. Did your parents talk to you about sex? They didn't. They actually really didn't. When they did, it was like, don't do it, you know. (laughs) Don't do it until you get married. Um, And then I had a, a nurse came to school and told us about sex. And I went and talked to my mom about it. Um, This is when I was living in Kuwait. You know, it was basically sex ed. And then I went and talked to my mom and I said, hey, this nurse came in and told us this stuff. Is that all true? And she said, yes, it's all true. And that was essentially my uh, birds and bees talk. Well, one of the things, and I don't know if this relates to sex or not, but that I saw in a few of your stories, too, and one, it was like a little subtler. It was just more of like a prop. And the other, it meant meant more, was uh, the presence of dolls. I think that there's a really interesting relationship between young um, women and female identified and femme folks and dolls. And I think it's, um, you know, a doll is like really the perfect girl, right? Like she's perfect proportionately. She gets clean when you want her to get clean. She has a lot of good etiquette. She sits up straight. And then it's like, also there's this other component to, to this, which is it's creepy, you know, it's like this mini person who's not real, who's not a person. And then there's like this other, this other, other component, which is like when you look into it as a a theme in a, in a, in an art or in a short story, dolls are posable and they're, they become doubles. They become doubles for characters. And like, what's a character, right? Like that's not a real person. (laughs) So then it becomes this weird, like, like a bag inside a bag inside a bag. So it's like this, this, there's a doll and then there's a character and the relationship between them and then your relationship between yourself as the writer and the character, since the character is something you're creating, right? And fashioning and posing. So I've always just been fascinated with this entire relationship that I just described. When I was writing the collection, when I first started writing the collection or realizing that this book was a collection, that it was all connected with each other. Um, There were dolls everywhere. They were just popping up everywhere. I was at this writing residency at at Hedgebrook on Whidbey Island, which is an all women's residency. And everywhere around me, there were like doll themes, like either in the art that I was looking at or books I was reading. So I just ran with it. Do you want to talk about the title, Him, Me, Muhammad Ali? It it comes from one of your um, stories, and it's actually kind of like a little scene or a memory of a photo from one of your stories, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. I love the name Muhammad Ali. 
Um, it's obviously, it, it has a lot of meanings. And in the U.S., when people think of Muhammad Ali, they think of the boxer. And I knew that, and I was really excited about that. Um, in Egypt, Muhammad Ali is, you know, some people or you know, like, uh, I would say, like, colonial-minded historians would say that he was the founder of modern-day Egypt. Um, he was the Ottoman Empire's, like, you know, assigned ruler of Egypt, and his name was Muhammad Ali. And then um, Muhammad, in general, is the prophet of Islam, and Ali is the person that Shias, so people who aren't Sunni, uh, think of Ali as their prophet also. Oh, and then there's Muhammad Ali in the story, who's not actually Muhammad Ali the boxer, but is the mother. You know, that's who ends up being Muhammad Ali. So I love the idea of a book being named after all of these different, having all of these different layers, even if like just whoever walking by would look at it and think, oh, it's about, you know, a person, another person and um, a boxer. And it's it's essentially like two masculine entities, right? Him, me, Muhammad Ali. The me doesn't have a gender. So all of these things like were really exciting for me. And the music, the music in the title also. So like all the M's and the H's excited me. And the E sounds. <laughs> because my mom's a, a pianist and my sister is a composer and my son's a musician. So music has always been something that I respect and admire. Another thing that I noticed, the presence of oracles, like tarot card readers, psychics, oracles, people looking to others to tell their future. I'm just curious if that's something that you're interested in, if there's a superstitious quality to you or your history. Just wondering. Yeah. So like all of the cultures I come from are Mediterranean and the Mediterranean is so superstitious. Like, it's almost like that's all that's happening is <laughs> superstition, you know? So there's like, you know, you throw salt over a shoulder or you spit in your, in, in, in your shirt, like not actual spit, but like, you know, you make a spitting sound so that, you know, Satan like leaves your body or like you're, you know, you're looking through a book and putting your finger on one word. If you like really, really, really want to figure out what to do, then the book will tell you what to do. There's just like this, turning to a higher power, but making that higher power be a little more accessible, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's something I grew up with and it's something that is part of who I am. Um, I love like the idea of magic and, uh, I'm noticing that like a lot of the global South, like this is just something that, you know, people do, like they do voodoo, they do brujeria, they do, Santeria, they do, like, it's all just part of um, indigenous cultures. And I think that people who are disenfranchised tend to be, be attracted to it also. Because, you know, once once you feel like you have no power and that you have no way of, like, actually um, affecting how your life is going to turn out, then turning to magic or black magic is you know, a solution that makes sense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Renda Jarar, author of Him, Me, Muhammad Ali. Are your characters 
concerned with their appearance. I noticed more than once and you have. Um... <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> no. I noticed that in one of the one of the narrators says, my skin is black and I am a woman, so I am not considered unbearably beautiful. Um, and she was talking about herself kind of in relationship to her parents, especially her dad, whose skin is also black. But I'm just wondering if these women, even though they are strong and rebellious, and at, as, at the same time, some of them are kind of stuck in their situations or trapped physically or emotionally, um, if they're worried about how they look. I don't know if they're worried about how they look. This is what I think. I think that they're aware of a few things. One is they're aware that the way that they appear is something that they want to be in control of. So that's A. They want to be in control of how they look. And B, they're aware that they live in a world that judges them on how they look. It's like these two things happening at the same time. We, you know, you see this all the time online. Women and men will be polemicists. They'll make these really um, grand, uh, you know, statements. And when a man does it, like nobody's ever like, yeah, well, you're ugly, you know? <laughs> um, I'm talking about like trolls online. Like when a woman does it, invariably after the third or fourth, you know, trolling message, someone's like, well, you're fat or you're ugly or, you know what I mean? Or conflating the two. Um, so women's appearance comes into play when, you know, a woman's ideas are being discussed, whereas a man's ideas can be discussed separate from his appearance. Right. So I think because of misogyny, this is, this is just the way it is now. And a lot of my characters are women or femmes. So the way that they appear is always up for discussion when they don't want it to be up for discussion. Um, or they want it to be up for discussion, but only in terms of like praise <laughs> or, or, or like something that they want to talk about with their friends, you know, like whether it's like what hair color they want to have or what they want to wear. Can you share with me a passage from an author that speaks to you as a writer? This is, the first paragraph of a short story called The South by Jorge Luis Borges. The man who landed in Buenos Aires in 1871 bore the name of Johannes Dalman, and he was a minister in the evangelical church. In 1939, one of his grandchildren, Juan Dalman, was secretary of a municipal library on Calle Cordoba, and he considered himself profoundly Argentinian. His maternal grandfather had been that Francisco Flores of the Second Line Infantry Div Division, who had died on the frontier of Buenos Aires, run through with a lance by Indians from Catriel. In the discord inherent between his two lines of descent, Juan Dalman, perhaps driven to it by his Germanic blood, chose the line represented by his romantic ancestor, his ancestor of the romantic death. An old sword, a leather frame containing the daguerreotype of a blank-faced man with a beard, the dash and grace of certain music, the familiar strophes of Martin Fierro, the passing years, boredom and solitude, all went to foster this voluntary but never ostentatious nationalism. And then um, later on during at this, uh, in this paragraph, it says, um, late in February 1939, something happened to him. And that's the opening to a short story called The South. And what, what moved you about it? I love this short story in general and th this opening because 
it shows a character who has different lines of lineage to choose from, and he chooses a romantic death, the lineage of the romantic death. So you're set up to figure out that this, this, is, this is the kind of character this character is. And then at the very end, it's like something happens to him. And it's so, it's just such a simple turn in the paragraph. You know, everything is like in the past, in the past. And then all of a sudden we're in the present and something has happened. And it's just such a simple sentence. And it's so sexy because of how confident it is in its simplicity. And I also really like that the story is obsessed. Like I said earlier, I'm obsessed with duality and with like multiplicities of identity and the story is already showing us a man who's obsessed with those things too, the, who's obsessed with his different ancestries and, you know, is like very Argentinian in this way that he's getting to choose which lineage he wants to identify with. And then the story itself ends up being about him dying in a way that's pretty boring, but then he, in his own mind, makes it into a romantic and heroic death. So it's one of the very first short stories I read um, that had a twist ending that like was to me like very well done. And that could be an awesome story, whether or not you get the twist ending. Can you Mm -hmm. read something that you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky to write or turned out really different than you thought or changed a lot from the first draft. This, this is, this has a lot of profanity. It's called a sailor and it's a two and a half page story and I, it was really tricky to write because I gave myself uh, limits. Um, so the challenge is to write a story with no dialogue, with only reported dialogue, um, and have it move as quickly as possible without it feeling exposition-y. So I'll read the first section of it. And here we go. A sailor. She a sailor, a Turkish sailor, the summer she spends in Istanbul. When she comes home, it takes her three days to come clean about it to her husband. He says it doesn't bother him, and she tells him that it bothers her, that it doesn't bother him. He asks if she prefers him to be the kind of man who is bothered by fleeting moments, and she tells him that yes, she prefers that he be that kind of man. He tells her he thinks she married him precisely because he is the kind of man who doesn't dwell on fleeting moments, because he is the kind of man who does not hold a grudge. She tells him that holding a grudge and working up some anger about one's wife being a sailor is not the same thing. And it just keeps going that way. And so why did you pick this? Because it was just so new to me. Like I'd never um, written a short short I was happy with. I really admire uh, writers who can do short shorts. Lydia Davis namely being the one that I admire the most. And so like being able to accomplish this. And have people, you know, once I sent it out, have people like react to it in a very positive way. It made me so happy because it's like, you know, it's like for writers, like this is our version probably of like the Olympics, right? We're like, no, we want to be able to make this, to land this triple axle. So to me, like that was, that's how it felt like finishing that story. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Renda Girard author of Him, Me, Muhammad Ali. Where do you write? I write anywhere. Um, I, because I had my kids so young, I can really write like at a car wash. I could write on the toilet. I could write, like I really write anywhere. 
So anywhere in my house where I can put my laptop on something, I'll write. (laughs) And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I probably get away from writing more than I should. I love looking at at stuff, looking at art online, and I love going for walks um, with my dog and hanging out with friends and watching film and having sex. Those are all good places, good ways to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I'm not shy. Like I'll just ask people. You know, if if there's a couple of people on Twitter that I've been writing to back and forth a lot. Um, I'll say, hey, I have this thing. Um, do you want to look at it? And then can I get some feedback from you? Um, I have, I have this, I have this personal philosophy that, I mean, it's not my. I didn't come up with it, but it's basically like I have a right to ask, you know, anyone anything essentially, and they have the right to say yes or no. So, I just ask anyone and everyone, and if they say yes, I send it to them. <laughs> and how have you dealt with rejection? I received a lot of it um and the more you get of it and the more you understand that rejection isn't personal um even if it's personal it's not personal (laughs) I think that just dealing with so many editors and publishers saying no uh for years and is is really like humbling and makes you realize that you just have to keep going, you know? For each person who says no, you just have to send things out like three or four times more. And what is your favorite word? I've been thinking about this because initially it was the F word, but then I thought about words that I love and the word bezabiz came up, which is, it's an Egyptian word for boobs. And I just love the way it sounds. It's like, it's bezabiz. And in Palestinian, it's bzez, and the singular of bzabiz is biz, and I just love it. I love how, like, there's a zippiness, you know? It's like, sounds like a bee sting, or like a bee just hovering, or, and it's connected to breasts, which I think are amazing. I love, I love boobs. I think they're, you know, they've been sexualized, but they're just, like, life-giving and wonderful. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Runda Jarrar, author of the short story collection, Him, Me, Muhammad Ali. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.